I will say it's it's always fun to run into fans. So if you see me on the street uh, and you want to say hello, don't you know? Don't be shy. To let me know uh, that you love Cheap Talk, and, and I'd be happy to to sign autographs or or just talk for a little bit. Yeah, wear your Cheap Talk shirt, um, and we'll mm-hmm. we'll come up to you. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, I, I wear it most days. Hi everyone. Welcome to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Caplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. What's going on, Jeff? I hope you're, you're doing well. So for the listeners at home, uh, at the moment that, that we're recording this, there's a lot of smoke outside on the East Coast. And this is um, very strange. Like, this, this happens every once in a while when there's forest fires, if you live near a place that has forest fires. But these forest fires are taking place in Canada. And yet the effects of those fires are being felt as, as far south as like South Carolina and North Carolina on the east coast of, of the United States. And in some places like New York City, looking at pictures today, it's, it's really bad. Looks like Mars. Yeah. I blame Canada, I guess, is the moral. Uh, they're always the ones that are at fault here. It does make you think about like the importance of controlled burns and proper forestry maintenance and... All that kind of stuff. Because we just need a really, these... we need a really high border wall. Is what will solve this. How high does a the high border, border wall? wall? Or you know, uh, Trump's idea, where, like sweeping the forests, wasn't that was, was he's like, I got an idea for how to stop these forest fires in California. Like, just sweep the the ground. I think. That yeah, was I remember idea. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Trump yeah. is a as forestry expert. Hey, hey, and maybe maybe he was right. I don't know. Maybe the Canadians need to start. Sweeping their forests. I, I saw um, a, a couple people mention um, that, uh, you know, they live in the Pacific Northwest or California. And it's, you know, nice that New York, like, there's there's a little smoke in the air. And all of a sudden, this is like a big national story that, that there's forest fires. Right. If you live in, in the Pacific Northwest or California, you know, this is kind of part of your, your yearly uh, routine. So we're getting a, just a very small taste of what they have to deal with uh, pretty routinely. The closest thing I've ever experienced to this, by the way, is I was once in uh, Europe, and I think the one of the volcanoes in Iceland had like right done its thing, and and so then there was like this haze and this like particulate, and and the air. I was flying back to the United States and like from Paris or something like that, and the plane had to do this like really long circuitous route to get out of the ash. For, because they didn't want to get ash in the engines, I guess that's bad for airplanes. It makes sense, uh, but it ended up taking like twice as long to get home from Europe as it normally does because you had to go around the ash. But that's kind of the closest thing that I can I can recall to something like this. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus. We have I think a little more than a month off just to relax, reflect our thoughts, recharge the old batteries, reflect, recharge our yeah, something like that. Um, you were uh, traveling a little bit, right? Hit Scotland. I, I was in St. Andrews uh, two weeks ago, and I, I will be at St. Andrews again for their graduation. I'm looking forward to that. And then I'm going to uh, Australia very soon for a conference on artificial intelligence and diplomacy, which should be interesting. What? Seriously? Yes. That's great. The, the tricky bit is I'm only going to be there for 48 hours. So oh, it's going to take a little longer to get there and come back than I will actually be on the ground. But it's okay. I'm looking forward to it. These are, these are people that I do not know, uh, and I'm looking forward to meeting them. And I think the topic is kind of interesting. It's to, to give you a, a preview, I'll talk more about this when I get back from the, the workshop. But the question is a sort, of, sort of along the lines of what, if any, uh, sort of implications does AI, artificial intelligence, have for thinking about uh, nuclear crises, 
right? So one one counterfactual might be like if AI was around during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we've kind of touched on some of these topics before, what would that make a difference? Like, does it lead to more rational decision making? Could you have, uh, you know, Kennedy run the letter that he wants to send to Khrushchev, like through ChatGPT, and ChatGPT can say, like, I, I like the way he phrases, but what, have you considered like doing it this way? Like all kinds of different, you know, sort of implications potentially for AI during a nuclear crisis. Uh, and so we're going to kind of explore some of those things and try to sort out both from a like, kind of technological perspective, but also a political perspective, what this might be all about. Because one day we might find ourselves in a nuclear crisis. And artificial intelligence, I don't think, is going anywhere. And so trying to understand what the, the intersection of those two things might be, I think, is important. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, should be good. Maybe Japan this summer? I'm also going to Japan. Also yeah. going to Japan? Yeah. Play some baseball? baseball? Well, I'm not going to play baseball. I might watch a little bit of baseball. But yeah, this is uh, another project that we have underway. By the way, I will, I will explain all of these things uh, uh, once they happen and give you a full debrief when I'm back from these trips. Excellent. Well, it sounds like a, a fun summer ahead. I'm glad we caught you before some of these these big trips, so we can um, just touch base about a, a few things that have been going on. A couple in the things world. going on. Yep. Let's yeah. do it. So I thought maybe we could start with a little bit of a Ukraine check in. As you know, Marcus, there's a there's a war happening. Um, right. Uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and uh, now is still fighting there, despite the international community coming out and saying this was this was uh, wrong and should uh, Russia should not have done it. I thought we could maybe talk about a few of the recent events there. Maybe we can start with a story about Russian missiles, Russian hypersonic missiles. So Russia has a missile uh, called the Kinzhal, which is uh, technically a hypersonic missile, which just means it goes really fast. And it is an air-launched missile that Russia has kind of touted as a way to avoid missile defense systems because it moves too quickly for traditional missile defense systems to take out. And it kind of reduces the potential response time of the adversary because the missile is coming at them so fast. And it's not a particularly long range missile. So that kind of strategic story behind this missile is a little bit limited, but it's something that Russia has deployed in Ukraine and has used in Ukraine. And there was a story recently, last month, about uh, Russian Kinzhal strikes on Patriot missile batteries. So the Patriot missile battery, the Patriot is a missile defense system, the U.S. missile defense system that's been provided by the U.S. and Germany to Ukraine. And it's, you know, I think maybe many of our listeners are familiar with Patriot. It's basically, an, the idea is the this is a very advanced radar array that can track incoming missiles. And then other missiles are fired at those missiles. It's like hitting a bullet with a bullet in the air. And the idea is to knock those missiles out of the sky before they have a chance to hit their intended target. And the Patriot was used I think, first in, in conflict in the first Gulf War, um, where it was used to kind of defend um, Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia against Scud missiles uh, fired by Iraq and kind of gotten a reputation for relative effectiveness uh, back then, even though some later efforts to look at Patriot performance suggested that it wasn't very effective at all. And the reason I wanted to talk about missile defense is, so we have this this hypersonic missile that is uh, supposed to be able to evade missile defense systems. We have the Patriot battery, which, you know, has a kind of checkered history in terms of its effectiveness. But this news coming out of Ukraine is that Ukraine has used the Patriot missile successfully to shoot down this hypersonic missile fired by Russia. And so I've gotten some emails from students uh, asking questions about this. Part of the the reason students are emailing me is that in my classes, uh, I am kind of 
pretty clear about my skepticism about missile defense, that I don't really think it works most of the time. And so, you know, we see all these news stories and there's a legitimate question there. What should we make of all this, right? Is this, is this just a failed missile system on the part of Russia? Is the Patriot more effective than we've kind of given it credit for or some combination of the two? Um, or is something else going on here? And so I, I guess I'll answer my own questions here and just say that, uh, uh, yes, I think all that stuff is going on. So the first, uh, the first part of this is that I don't think the Kinzel is a great example of what a hypersonic missile system can be in that it has some, some serious limitations. And there's some questions about uh, how far into its flight it can maintain its hypersonicness. So uh, hypersonic missiles are missiles that go uh, faster than Mach 5. So really fast, but it's pretty clear that the Kinzel cannot carry that speed throughout its entire flight and may slow down significantly before hitting its target. Um, and if that's the case, that would make it more susceptible to the kinds of missile defense systems that Ukraine has and is using, like the Patriot. Um, and so there are some weaknesses in, in the Kinzel, and maybe it's not comparable because of that to hypersonic systems that are being developed by China and the United States, which are designed to kind of maintain that speed uh, throughout, the, throughout the flight. So that's one issue is weaknesses on the Russia side. The other issue is you know, maybe the Patriot is more effective than, than, than I thought um, that it has been. And there have been improvements to the Patriot's missiles, uh, the Patriot um, missile defense system uh, over the years. And it's you know, better now than it has been for sure. And it may be good enough now to be effective against these kinds of targets. And we've had lots of stories coming out of Ukraine about the effectiveness of this system. But I think there's also something else going on. And this is a question of signaling which I know is something that, Marcus, you think a lot about in your, in your academic work. And, you know, a question I, I posed to my students in class is, imagine that you had a missile defense system, somebody fired a missile at you, and you shot it down. Would you, like, announce that your success in, in, in shooting it down? And the answer is, of course, yes, you would, right? Because by announcing your success in missile defense, you deter future missile strikes, right? Because why would why should the adversary waste missiles firing them into your missile defense um, so they may not fire them at all? Imagine, though, that you have uh, an adversary fires missiles at you, you launch your missile defense system, and it doesn't work. Would you announce that your missile defense works? Yes, you would. You still would announce that your missile defense works. Why? For the same reason, because you're trying to deter future missile strikes. In fact, if your missile defense isn't particularly effective, you're even more likely to want to announce that it works because you don't want the adversary firing missiles in that case. And there is very, it's very hard to tell from the perspective of open source information that comes from these conflicts how effective these missile defense systems are. And we have a lot of examples of countries declaring that they were successful in shooting missiles out of the sky when, in fact, the missile had gone awry and just missed its target or you had an explosion, but it wasn't the missile being struck. It was, it was the defender exploding and all kinds of examples of this where the kind of default thing that countries do is they say, yeah, we shot down all 18 of the 18 missiles that were fired at us. And there's, it's very difficult to verify those kinds of claims. And so I think it's a safe bet, really, that the effectiveness of these systems is being exaggerated by Ukrainian statements about what's going on in the conflict. And we shouldn't necessarily take those at face value. It doesn't mean that the Patriot is useless by any means, right? Um, I'm sure that the Patriot is successful in some cases, but I think it's probably not true that the Patriot is as successful as Ukraine is kind of making it out to be in the statements uh, they make. The other problem with the Patriot is that it is a giant radar, okay? And so because of that, 
it is a juicy target for Russian missiles because it can they can lock onto this radar system. And so this it, it's clear from the stories around this hypersonic launch that the Kinzel was aimed at the Patriot. That is, the Patriot was the target of those missiles. And for Ukraine, this is a probably a good news story because you'd much rather have the Patriot draw missile fire than you know, other targets, right? Civilian targets or other military targets. And so part of what the Patriot is doing, uh, part of the Patriot's success is just by attracting the attention of Russia and taking Russian missiles that would have been sent at other targets and drawing them to the Patriot. That is uh, very interesting and detailed uh, analysis. <laughs> my my monologue you, for today. Yeah, that Sorry, was great. Marcus. So the podcast is now over. And um, <laughs> that, that was great. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, I, I mean, I, I pretty much agree with everything you said. Do, do we know, by the way, how many of these hypersonic uh, missiles Russia has? Do we have like a good sense of like, you know, do they have ten, hundreds? What do we know? I, I don't know. I, I I think probably not hundreds. Right. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting about the story is is when you combine it with how desperately. Zelensky wanted the Patriot missiles in the first place, right? So it's like, you know, that that in a way that's its own signaling story, right? It's kind of like, okay, we we desperately need these these missiles. Uh, if we get them, now Russia knows that we have them, and we can combine that with you know these claims about them working. That might deter uh, Russia from from launching more hypersonic missiles because they, they they either think it's not going to work or they don't want to waste them. They don't want to waste right. the hypersonic missiles because they use them some some other place, some other conflict, uh, or in some other way. So I think if you combine the two things about how, how desperate Zelensky was for them and the fact that they seem to be to be working, this does create like a really nice example of a of a signaling story, both to you know Russia and, and, and you know Russian military uh, strategists, but also just you know to to the sort of broader uh, world out there that Ukraine is not only uh, fighting, but they're doing a really good job. Like they're they're taking you know Russia's best shot, if you will, in terms of the missile capability that they have, and it's it's inert, it's not working. Uh, which I think is another another sort of good thing for Ukraine and keeping up the sort of morale and, and you know, Western audiences paying attention to what's going on will realize maybe, you know, Ukraine is doing better than than we thought that they could do precisely because they have these uh, missiles. And it also makes the U.S. look pretty good because the U.S. thought a long time about this and debated internally about whether it was a good idea to send these Patriot missiles in the first place, uh, even if they're not working. But if we think that they are, it makes the U.S. sort of justified uh, in making that decision because then theoretically they really are helping Ukraine. So I, I think it's a very neat, neat story. There's the other piece when you, whenever you talk about missile defense is um, the economics of offensive and defensive missile production. So when you're shooting a missile with a missile, you know, the obvious answer to, to dealing with that is to fire more missiles. If you're, if you're the, on the offense here, usually the offensive missile is cheaper than the defensive missile. Patriot systems are expensive. And so uh, one strategy in defeating them is to flood the zone, right? Just have like so many missiles in the air that it confuses the radar array, makes it difficult for the Patriot to uh, defend targets. But in this case, I think the economics might be working in the other direction, because Ukraine isn't producing these systems, right? And they're not really paying for them either. So they're kind of provided to Ukraine for free. And so if free is probably the wrong word, but they're provided to Ukraine, not at the true cost of a Patriot array. And so for Russia, though, it's bearing the full cost of building hypersonic missiles and other kinds of, of missile systems. And so uh, it, it may be that the economics of this really do work out in 
in the defender's favor when usually when we think about missile defense, the defense is more expensive than the offense. Um, but in this case, I'm not sure that that's true. Right. And one other uh, point I think that, that should be made, and you, I think you sort of alluded to this, it's, it's the hypersonic part that makes the missile defense system challenged, right? So in other words, like, you know, Iron Dome in Israel works really well. Like their success rate is something like 90, 95%. I mean, it, it, who knows? I, I mean, it says you, Marcus. I think, I think the, the, the problem with all of these success rates right. is that we don't, I, I don't think there's a lot of reason to believe it. Okay, well, well hold, on, hold on one second. Right. Let me just finish my thought, Jeffrey. Okay, sorry. So, so let's assume for a second that the number is true. Like let's say it is 95%. The, the, the explanation for that would be that what the, the you know, people in the Gaza Strip are sending over are not hypersonic missiles. And so therefore it's an easier problem to solve from a missile defense system uh, perspective, because they're like normal rockets, they don't go as fast or whatever. The real challenge here is, at least theoretically, that the hypersonic missiles go so fast that it's it's very tricky to to shoot those out of the sky. But it sounds like you're skeptical, kind of, of all of the the missile defense systems, even the more traditional non-hypersonic ones that they're shooting out of the sky. Yeah, I mean, so speed is a key issue here. So certainly, the theater missile defense systems like Iron Dome or like the Patriot. Or that that defend like a small area, th- those missile defense systems are for sure more effective than something like national missile defense. Like this idea that the U.S. is going to shoot down a ballistic missile sent by North Korea to, to the United States. And part of the reason that national missile defense is such a tricky problem is that ballistic missiles are hypersonic missiles. Intercontinental missiles are hypersonic. So they, they're going really fast. Um, and so they, they lack the kind of maneuverability of, of a traditional hypersonic missile. So when we think about intercontinental ballistic missiles, it's like like throwing a baseball into the outfield, right? There's an arc and gravity determines where that missile is coming down. So it's easier to chart the where it's going to land so you know mm-hmm. where you're going to be able to hit it um, with much more certainty than if the missile were more maneuverable. And hypersonic missiles like the Kinzhal are supposed to be more maneuverable, um, although in Russia's case, it's not entirely clear that's true. So part of it is speed and part of it is maneuverability. And so for the hypersonic missile, being really fast means that there's an added challenge for the defender in, in striking it. And being able to maneuver means that the defender doesn't necessarily know where that missile is going to be uh, when it's an appropriate time to strike it. I was just looking up the Missile Defense Agency's uh, budget. And in fiscal year 2021, it was $9 billion uh, to support basically a, a national... Uh, sort of missile defense system. And there's there's various types, and you, you know much more about this than I do. But it sounds like, from what you're saying, when it comes to ballistic missiles or other types of hypersonic uh, missiles, it's highly unlikely that any of these systems are going to get to the point within the, you know, sort of near near term, near future, where we can reliably say we have a system that's going to, you know, prevent some type of nuclear strike delivered by a, a ballistic missile. The folks who talk about this, who who work for the for the Missile Defense Agency, always strike a confident note about the effectiveness of U.S. missile defense. And I think that that goes to the signaling story. What else are you going to do? There's no downside to seeming as if these systems work. The problem is when data has been released about how well these systems work in test runs, it turns out they do okay. You know, they they hit the missile most of the time. They, they, They take out the missile most of the time in tests. But... In the test, you know where the missile is. There's only one. <laughs> you know where it's going, where it's going to be, how fast it's going, right? The whole way. Everyone is calm. No one is freaking out, right? It is just a, a very different atmosphere than the one you would find yourself in in an actual attack where there will be real questions about, like, is this a real strike? 
where is this missile from? How can I can I track it? Are there countermeasures? Is there just one? Dealing with just one missile is a lot easier than multiple missiles. So extrapolating from these these test data to the success of the system in a real conflict scenario is tricky. And I think it's safe to say we're likely to do a lot worse if there were a real system, a real test, a real conflict than we do in the tests. For that reason, I don't think people should have a lot of confidence that national missile defense is like a real thing that that's going to work. Uh, but you can't blame you can't blame uh, missile defense folks for for trying for striking a note of confidence about it. That's exactly what they should be doing because it sends a signal. You know, don't bother North Korea sending a missile our way because we'll we'll, hit, we'll knock it down anyway, and then you're in trouble. Right. Although the North Koreans also have some experience with testing uh, missiles and, and presumably have the same thought process that we do. So they they might be uh, a little bit more realistic about the success of our missile defense systems. And so therefore, you know, they're not, they're not going to be too too concerned about what we say about them. I think that's fair. I mean, in Superman 4, this, the solution to this problem was Superman went into space yeah. and the nuclear missiles were shot into space and he grabbed them all and put them in like a big bag and then threw them into the sun. Um, we don't have that option, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, that would be cool. Right. Although, maybe later in the podcast, we will touch on some non-human uh, evidence of, of non-human entities. <laughs> right, maybe, there. yeah, Superman is, is Could be Superman. really involved. Uh, let's talk about Bakhmut. So, um, uh, happening in, in Ukraine over the last several months has been uh, a, a kind of long-term defense of what was once the city of Bakhmut in Ukraine, which is now... Um, pretty much entirely destroyed. Uh, and this was the site of a long conflict, long battle between uh, Ukraine and Russian troops and Wagner troops, the Russian private military company that is uh, supporting, is supported by and is supporting Russian troops. And this has been going on some time. And just recently, Ukraine kind of abandoned Bakhmut to, to, the, to the Russians um, and uh, kind of shifted their lines a little bit. And there's been a lot of discussion about among among kind of military analysis types about what's going on here, because Bakhmut, on the face of it, is not a strategically important location, right? There are really no people there anymore to defend uh, for the most part, and it, it, it's not an easily defended city. And so it, there have been a lot of questions. Does it make sense that Ukraine has been sinking so much effort and so many lives into the defense of this city? And for a while, the U Ukraine kind of justified this on the grounds that, well, you know, yes, it's costly for us, but it's more costly for Russia. That is, the, the Russia trying to take this city is losing more troops than we are. And I, I think that was true for a while. But as the conflict kind of shifted to the point where it was really Wagner troops carrying out this conflict and not Russia regular military troops, that, that kind of calculus changed a little bit because many Wagner troops are not kind of high-quality troops. They're, they're conscripts from prison or other places um, that are kind of being thrown at the, at the line. And, and so the value you, one should well, – these are all people. And you should place a lot of value on people. But the, the military value you should place on those, on those troops is, is probably less. Um, and so the calculus changes significantly for, for Ukraine at that point. But yet Ukraine kind of persisted in – defending the city and, and lost a lot of lives in, in doing so. And uh, I think it's maybe worth discussing here the reasons that you might decide to continue that fight, even if this isn't strategically important, even if you're losing a lot of troops that could be put to better use elsewhere, that you still might want to push through. 
And I think I think the problem for Ukraine is that it kind of placed a lot of emphasis on the defense of this city early on. That Zelensky went on TV and said, you know, we're not going to cede this territory to Russia. And I think that made the what wasn't strategically significant territory into strategically significant territory because it is very important for Ukraine at this stage in the war to show the international community that it is not losing territory, that it is gaining, that it is making progress, that it is a worthwhile investment for the right-thinking international community, for Europe and the United States to be supporting Ukraine with military supplies, with, with weapons, and with money. And the way that they demonstrate that is by not ceding territory, not appearing to lose at all. And it, it strikes me that this is one way in which kind of military strategy really is political strategy, that it's not just about the kind of military calculus, the tactical calculus, should we see this territory fall back here? It's about the signal that this sends to the international community, to domestic audiences that are worried about, you know, supporting the the ongoing fight. So I think we sometimes see these wars, we look at like the military strategy going on, and the troop movements, and it's easy to get kind of lost in that. But really for Ukrainian leadership, what's important is sending the signal that's going to get them continued support that's going to allow them to continue to prosecute the fight. I agree with with all of that. And I think it's I think the same analysis can be applied to the Russian side, right? Like one of the reasons why the Russians were so interested in the Wagner group, you know, put, put so much effort into taking Bakhmut, I think was, uh, can be explained by by similar things, right? It's not, if it wasn't strategic uh, for Ukraine to be doing it, it wasn't strategic for Russia. Uh, there doesn't appear to be like a lot of reasons for the Russians to care about this particular uh, city, except if you think about it in terms of needing to send a signal to Russians back home in Moscow watching, you know, TV or, you know, the, the military morale or whatever, the same exact reasons that Ukraine has to fight for it also exist on the, on the Russian side. And so when those two things are sort of, you know, at, at play, it creates this very tense situation where both sides want to win this, this city, want to take over or not cede control. And for no real reason other than the symbolic, I mean, of course, they want to protect the Ukraine wants to protect the people that are living there. But once it's been you know, clear that that uh, that that's not happening and the city is in ruins, what is the, what is the purpose? The purpose is, is political signaling, you know, both internationally, but also domestically. So I think it's, it's one of these interesting situations where, um, you know, the, the same calculus is really going, you know, it's going in different directions, but can be used by both to explain both Ukrainian behavior and also uh, Russian behavior. It's also been the site of some interesting maneuverings between the head of the Wagner group and kind of the regular Russian military. I don't know if you've seen these articles, Marcus, but it's there's there's been some infighting among those among those groups and people speculate about the the kind of political sway that each of these leaders has with Putin and uh you know there there was an incident in which the Wagner group actually like arrested a a Russian military officer and accused right. them of firing on Wagner troops and it's the whole whole kind of uh, mini scandal in, in Russian military circles. Yeah. And I saw, you know, the, the head of the Wagner group was, was saying, you know, basically condemning Russia for not doing enough, not giving him enough weapons and enough, you know, artillery and stuff like that to take, to take the city. So it does seem like this, this particular place was the site of, you know, lots of sort of internal, uh, let's call them frustrations on the, on the Russian side. Um, and that might've been another reason why it, it, 
has been such a prolonged conflict. It's like, you know, the Wagner group wants to show that they have control and they want to show, you know, the Russian military, this is what we need to be doing. So you should be doing this is a place you should care about. And we're going to need resources in order to, to do that. So it's, it's very, it's a very bizarre uh, kind of situation, but ultimately quite sad in how that, that has uh, turned out. Do you think that, you know, Bakhmut tells us anything moving forward about where the war is likely to go or anything about this sort of counteroffensive that seems to be uh, kind of mounting from, from Ukraine? No, I don't. I actually don't think so. And I think that kind of goes to the the relative lack of strategic significance of, of Bakhmut in the kind of overall big picture. I, I don't I don't think most military analysts see that area as the site of this counteroffensive or one of as one of the areas that that Ukraine is likely to focus on in a counteroffensive. So right. I, I mean it, it's possible certainly that this is something that Ukraine wanted to prosecute for, for the purpose of, of fixing Russian troops. So one really important thing lead, coming up to the counteroffensive that people are all talking about, but as we talk you know, we don't really know what shape that counteroffensive is taking. We kind of there have been an uptick in movements in different parts of the country, but I, I think we still don't have a good idea of, of what's going on on that front. But uh, as you're preparing for something like this, for this counteroffensive, it's important to 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 make sure that Russian troops are where you want them. And one way to kind of fix Russian troops in place is to kind of continue to prosecute the fight. Um, and so, even if it isn't strategically important for its own purposes, that location might have been helpful in keeping Russian troops away from other parts of the country where Ukraine does want to focus its attention. I, I read an interesting article, which I will put a link to in the show notes by uh, Phillips O'Brien, who is a kind of military analyst, a Russia analyst, talking about the change in tone coming from the West uh, with regard both to the likely prospects for Ukraine in its counteroffensive, which is kind of interesting that the that Western discussion of it is kind of more positive about Ukraine's prospects for gaining territory, for doing well in its upcoming counteroffensive, but also in terms of the future of Ukraine in NATO. And I wondered if maybe you have some some thoughts on this, Marcus. I do have some thoughts on this. I mean, I, I think that my first thought is that it's amazing to me that there is discussion at this moment about Ukraine joining NATO, not not like necessarily in the future. Like some people are saying like now, like, you know, Finland's in now we're we're, we're moving to, to Ukraine to, to get in when at the beginning of the invasion, all of the discourse uh, or, or a lot of the discourse anyway, among, you know, security analysts and, and international relations scholars and stuff was was basically making the argument that. One of the reasons this happened was the, the prospect, the, just like the idea that Ukraine would be, be in NATO. And so you have this situation where as the war has waged on, people have gotten more and more comfortable with the idea, I think, of Ukraine uh, joining NATO. And I, I think it's just an interesting question to ask. Well, why, why is that? Like, why, if you think that potentially Ukraine and NATO was the, the impetus for the war, why now would you be sort of toying with the idea of allowing uh, Ukraine to join NATO? And there's a couple of potential explanations. One is that what the war has shown uh, to a lot of people is that Russia is not as powerful as we thought. Um, Russia, you know, there's a Blinken speech in the, in the article that talks about this where he's sort of mocking uh, Russia's power, which, again, nothing that you would do in the lead up to the war or in the early days uh, of the war. But now you're sort of comfortable with it because or at least he's comfortable with it because he's seen that on the battlefield, Russia isn't what, what we thought it was. Um, I think the other thing that happens in, in these situations is that as time goes on, 
people get more and more comfortable just kind of generally about things. And so uh, when the war started, people were very much worried. Like, are we going to see some type of escalation? escalation? Is, is, you know, Putin going to avoid, uh, invade some other country? Uh, are we going to have, you know, this world war kind of kind of break out? And as every day goes by and that doesn't happen, and there's no nuclear strikes and people, you know, he's not using tactical nuclear weapons, people just start to get a little bit more comfortable generally with the, the status quo. And so the idea of, you know, Ukraine being in NATO all of a sudden doesn't seem quite as, as uh, uh, profound because you're, you're kind of comfortable with, with the situation. So I, I think it's, it's a very interesting conversation to be having when, when the war started. It was, you know, uh, compl- the, the people that argued that Ukraine should be in NATO then were much fewer in number than the people that are arguing now. The last thing I will say, though, is that the, the uncertainty about this war is still very high. All of the discussions that we've had on this podcast about, you know, nuclear, uh, technical nuclear weapons being used and the potential for uh, escalation or something happening by mistake or some type of uncertain outcome occurring, that's all still true. And so if you believe that Ukraine joining NATO would be a, a, a very bold move vis-a-vis Putin and that might cause Putin to do something to escalate, I think all of those arguments still apply. It's just that what we've seen on the conventional side of things that, you know, at least in the in Ukraine, they haven't been as, as successful as as we thought. But it's strange to me that that would be the reason why that people would be more comfortable. You know, Ukraine's Russia not being quite as powerful conventionally would be the thing that makes you comfortable with Ukraine uh, joining NATO. And the last thing I'll say, and this is a question to you, if they were to join tomorrow, what do you think that the effect would be? Would the war end? Would would all of a sudden, you know, Western powers uh, move in and we'd have troops on the ground? Like what what would the effect of NATO joining Ukraine joining NATO be? So it's it's unclear. Well, I think that's why they can't join tomorrow and they can't join until the war is over or until the war is like halted. Right. It doesn't have to necessarily end. But it but there can't be an ongoing conflict and, and Ukraine joins NATO because that would call for NATO troops on the ground defending Ukraine. And uh, that seems escalatory to me uh, and, and it's something I, th- I think we ought to try to avoid. So I, uh, I don't think for that reason there will be a, a serious attempt to bring Ukraine into NATO until the war is ended. But by the same token, what this article points out, which I think is an excellent point, is that it's, it's hard to imagine a future scenario where the war ends and there isn't a pathway for Ukraine to join NATO because – how could you trust Russia to not try again in the future once it rebuilds, once it uh, – absent some kind of regime change, of course w- – once it kind of beefs up its military again? Ukraine is going to be in a position after this war, if this war reaches some kind of settlement, Ukraine is going to need foreign investment. It's going to need help rebuilding. And how can you do – how can you engage in that rebuilding with the threat of a Russia reinvasion any time? And so there will need to be steps taken to kind of reassure everyone, the international community and Ukraine, that there, there won't be a future, future Russian aggression against Ukraine. And I think the way to do that is NATO. Uh, so n- not now, but later, yes. I, I think it's hard to see a, an outcome for Ukraine that doesn't involve some kind of pathway to NATO members. Right. And I think the, the regime change question is, is a big one, right? So like if, if we do happen to see uh, some type of change in political leadership in Russia, maybe that makes this a moot, moot point. But even then, you know, Ukraine would, would presumably still want to get into to NATO because if you don't trust Russia now, probably not going to trust them in the future, even with a new, a new leader or, or, you know, absent some type of, you know, major kind of cultural change going on in, in Russia. 
it, it would not you wouldn't be sort of confident that this couldn't couldn't happen again. I completely agree with that. And just Jeff, think about how 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 wild this is, right? If the premise that Putin was working under was that he was going to invade Ukraine to prevent uh, Ukraine getting into NATO and showing the West, like, don't do this. It's, it's sort of like, you know, we're going to we're going to show you what, what happens if you if you mess in our backyard. Completely, completely botched it, because now we're much closer to Ukraine joining NATO, it seems to me, than we were before the invasion. And so, you know, just another indication that this was a, a bad idea, assuming those were the, the intentions. Um, Bad idea for for Putin to do this because it completely, you know, hampered any any sort of you know progress he might have been making in preventing Ukraine uh, getting into NATO, and in, in fact accelerated it. Yeah, I love the symmetry of this. You know that that uh, what does Putin want with this invasion? He wants to weaken NATO. So what does he get? A stronger NATO <laughs> with Ukraine in it. What does he want? He wants a an economically resurgent Russia. What does he get? An economically weakened Russia. So it, it's it's. You know, I do enjoy that element of it, right? That Putin, everything Putin wanted, he seems to be, uh, things seem to be going in the other direction. And that hasn't worked out. That's good news. That's, I think, generally good news. Also good news is uh, evidently aliens are real. Yeah, that's true. You want to, you want to talk about this story? Well, there was a a report uh, that I saw on Twitter and and Jeff, you sent me from uh, intelligence officials who said so first well but, but wait so what <laughs> is this a real report what 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 news organization well, is this from this is well okay first of all it's the de- debrief.org so it's a, it's a dot org so therefore it's legitimate <laughs> right i mean i don't, I don't trust dot coms i don't trust dot ru but i trust the dot org if a dot org is telling me something i'm going to take it seriously um and, but the story is that there's a former intelligence official or officer who has given congress classified information, evidently, about covert programs that were involved in retrieving intact and partially intact, quote, craft of non-human origin. And this sort of informant or whistleblower or whatever you want to call this person has been saying that this information has has been withheld from you, from Congress, uh, and people need to know about it. And there's basically this cover up and we need to we need to be talking about this uh, craft that of non-human origin. Now, I will say and we'll link to this uh, story in the in the show notes or you will that this is not the the, the details here are kind of sketchy. There's not a ton of evidence to support what this uh, official is saying. But I guess the track record of this official is pretty good. In other words, like he was a sort of decorated um, uh, person, and, and we have no reason to, to believe that he's lying. It's not obvious that he has a sort of financial incentive to any of this, the things you would normally think about uh, when it comes to, to whistleblower uh, types of people. So, you know, from that perspective, maybe maybe there is some legitimacy to it. I, I'm a little hesitant to say that this is evidence that they're, they're here and aliens are, are living with us. Um, it's possible there's maybe a misunderstanding about what this vehicle is. It's possible that, you know, some entity was testing out some type of vehicle that might appear to be non-human to the untrained eye, but actually that's that's not, you know, the, the, the government does this a lot and they have all kinds of different, you know, testing programs and so on. So there's a lot of other explanations, many of which are probably more likely uh, than an alien aircraft being uh, on Earth, but... It's kind of interesting, and it does, I think, raise some questions about if they are here, you know, what does that mean for us, Jeff? What does what, what the existence of, of aliens on Earth uh, do to us? 
I don't know, but I want to talk about this guy because. Th- okay. th- so what's what's interesting here? To well, I think it's I don't I don't know. I, I'm I'm skeptical. I'm just going to say I'm skeptical. Okay. Uh, the reason that this is all coming out is that this guy is making a whistleblower protection case, mm-hmm. right? So he's saying that he gave information to Congress and he's being punished for it, career wise, um, and in fact was I think left the Air Force because of this retaliation against him. And right. a lot of this article is full of like testimonials from people who've worked with this guy saying that he's, uh, you know, a, a good officer, a, a, you know, a patriot, whatever. Uh, but I think it's kind of a, an interesting angle. It's just like, it's possible that everyone's out to get him, right? <laughs> or it's possible he's, you know, not all there um, when it comes to uh, what's really going on and it believes there's a conspiracy where there, where there isn't one. So, some of the things he alleges here, he says that the UFO legacy programs have long been concealed within, quote, multiple agencies, uh, nesting these UAP. What's UAP stand for again? UAP is Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena, anomalous, right. which is what, what we're calling um, uh, UFOs now. So there have been multiple agencies nesting these UAP activities in conventional secret access programs without appropriate reporting to various oversight authorities. The argument is he's, he's saying that uh, intelligence agencies are kind of keeping this stuff away from Congress when it should have been reported. He said that he reported to Congress on the existence of a decades-long, quote, publicly unknown Cold War for recovered and exploited physical material, a competition with near-peer adversaries, that means Russia and China, over the years to identify UAP crashes, landings, and retrieve the material for exploitation reverse engineering to garner asymmetric national defense advantages. So what he's saying is that the U.S., China, and Russia are competing to go to the crash sites of the UAP, get the the uh, alien spaceship materials, and bring them back to our lab so we can replicate that material so we can make advanced defenses before China does. Which is seems legit. Yeah, you know, this is very, uh, very Marvel-esque, right? And, I mean, that, that may be right. Uh, but I, I think the, the more countries and people who are involved in this conspiracy, the harder it is for me to believe um, that this is a real thing. Because uh, if there's one thing my many years in government um, have taught me, it's that the, the, the ability of the government to, to carry on a conspiracy is rather limited. And the ability of multiple governments to carry on multiple conspiracies is even more limited. So if like one of these things lands in Australia, you know, I, I, I have a hard time believing that like all, everyone's in on it. Right. But it's, it's a uh, possible, it, it could happen, but it seems to me that there's, this is an extraordinary claim that probably merits extraordinary evidence before we decide that there are foreign, uh, there are alien origin spacecraft that have landed in the United States that are being secretly held by multiple governments around the world for their own defense advantage. Right. I mean, it, the, 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 the weather balloon situation sort of shows like you can't even keep weather balloons like for off the radar or whatever. Like you're going to, you're going to really keep, you know, all of these different like landing uh, places sort of secret and the governments are going to, you know, have you know cooperation in this and not let anybody like know about it. And we're going to do this cold war, but no one's going to know. It does seem a little far fetched. On the other hand, Jeff, I'm sympathetic to, uh, or, or I can sort of like in, take the perspective of somebody who might have stumbled across in their, in their job, an alien aircraft. 
and like you want to tell somebody, you want to you want to like let people know. But the me- the moment those words leave your mouth, everybody thinks you're you're nuts, right? So yeah. like it's kind of a tricky position to be in. There are other people, of course, like this. I mean, there's a, the Bob Lazar in the Area 51 uh, is a well known. Uh, uh, well, he's either a conspiracy kind of theorist uh, if you if you don't believe him, or like physicist who saw something that he wasn't supposed to see, and he, he he's been, went public about it and lost his career over it. Um, so there are people like that, and if 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 it is the case that you see something and you are sure that it's alien, it's really hard for you to make the argument and, and convince people. Uh, so I'm kind of sympathetic to the problem that these folks face. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, uh, I guess we'll see where this information goes because th- this person is claiming is giving additional information to Congress as part of this complaint, and so uh, maybe some of this will be made public as Congress holds hearings on on this these questions. And as we've talked about in the past, the government does have a, a, a strong interest if there are aliens and there are alien aircraft to to not have that information be made public, right? The United States doesn't have an interest in you know the New York Times uncovering. Uh, aliens, I don't think. Uh, and so therefore, like the part of it being like a secret Cold War, that part is believable because you could see like, okay, maybe the government don't want this to get out. Uh, it's, it's the coordination piece that you, you mentioned and having it not leak. Although I guess you could say that it did leak and this is what we're talking about, but, but not leak in a, in a sort of severe way with some type of evidence uh, to show the leak. That part is a little far-fetched. Yeah, and maybe it leaks all the time, but reporters don't believe it. You know, I, I can exactly. I, can see I hear that about too. aliens yep. all the time. And, yeah. You know, abductions, and and I mean, maybe the, all these stories are true. This yeah. is this is the problem with this topic is that we just don't we just don't know. And the debrief is the only publication debrief.org. that has the guts to stand up for the truth. You know, could be. I do I do agree with the folks who make the argument that we do need to remove the taboo of talking about UFOs or UAPs or whatever we're going to call them uh, and and sort of lift that a little bit so that we can start having rational, reasonable conversations about just how likely it is in the absence of evidence or strong evidence that something exists. Like, you know, all those those sort of radar things, the TikTok, uh, not TikTok, the TikTok uh, things that they were finding in these the 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 military aircraft were seeing these things and they showed up on radar. There are there are probably reasonable explanations for all of these things, but the sort of taboo of talking about UFOs or UAPs, I think, oftentimes gets in the way of kind of rational discourse over them. Yeah, yeah. So earlier this week, um, Apple had its big. Its, well, right now, Apple's having its worldwide developer conference for for folks who develop for Apple platforms. And as part of that, there was a keynote presentation. A few new Macs were announced. Um, the, the new updates to uh, iPhone and iPad and Mac software operating systems was announced. Some, some good changes there. And including the ability to tap back with emoji of any kind, which has been a, a long time request of mine. Mm. Um, anyway, but the, the, the news I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about is that Apple has announced the Vision Pro. Apple Vision Pro, which is a augmented reality headset and that will go on sale early next year, they say, for the bargain price of $3,500 starting out. A little at pricey. little pricey. $3,500. Yeah. A little pricey. So, I mean, I've, I'll pre-order as soon as, as soon as... At least three of them. Yeah, I'm allowed, right? Yeah. Well, I need one for each member of the family. I got a lot of kids, so... Because right. uh, you don't want to be the only one in the room with the headset on, right? No, it doesn't That's work. Awkward. I mean, you yeah. know, everybody yeah. needs to have one. Uh, so, you know, if you haven't seen the Apple presentation about this, I think it's it's, it's worth a look uh, because this is kind of one vision of where an important emerging technology is going. Um, and Apple claims to have solved a number of the problems that 
or at least gone further in addressing a number of the problems that have plagued other kinds of uh, virtual reality headsets and augmented reality devices. Uh, the reason I wanted to mention it now is because there are international security implications for mm. augmented reality. I think we've talked a little bit about virtual reality in the past on this on this podcast, but you know it's okay to revisit this stuff every yeah, once in a while. We can repeat ourselves every yeah, once in a while. Nobody's yeah, nobody's listening to all of them anyway, right? So, well, um, so, well, the, hi, seven listeners, we we see you there. So, you know, we've talked. I mean, there are, there may be a couple of applications for this. I, I wonder if is there is there work on the use of virtual reality in diplomacy, Marcus? Is this something that it, that has come up in in kind of your neck of the woods? There is, and I, we can uh, link to a couple pieces uh, in the show notes. Um, but there are there are projects underway at the State Department and Defense Department and other you know places like DARPA. I think you know that sort of looks at kind of interesting, crazy things sometimes, and they put some money into ideas that probably aren't going to pan out anytime soon, but nevertheless are kind of interesting to, to study. Um, so there's, there are going to be projects that we know about and the projects that we don't know, know about. I put DARPA, uh, I, I mentioned them for that reason. I have no idea, but it's something that they would probably be, be looking at. But yeah, I, mean, I think from a, a virtual reality slash augmented reality uh, perspective, there's, there's a couple of different ways that, that people are thinking about this in diplomacy. The first is um, the ways that you might think of, of traditional diplomacy, right? So instead of having a Zoom call uh, with, with a prime minister across an ocean, if you had an augmented or virtual uh, reality system, you could theoretically uh, make that a little bit more of an intimate experience where you can sort of, you know, quote unquote, feel the person uh, in the room. You could have a situation where, you know, you are sitting around a table, let's say, and, you know, maybe you write something down and pass it to somebody else uh, who can read it and you shake somebody's hand. You can like feel the the shake and things like that. So there there are people looking at what diplomacy looks like from a traditional kind of interpersonal uh, relationship perspective if you have augmented or virtual reality uh, on both sides, like what that might uh, allow. And I actually think that, that, you know, some of it sounds a little silly, but I do think like you can imagine a situation where – um, instead of like a hotline or instead of, you know, just having a, a, a Zoom call or something like that, the ability to actually kind of quote unquote be in the room w- without having to, to travel in a, in a crisis, let's say, or a moment of high uncertainty, um, I think there could be some value there. So I think that that is actually a, a good area of, of research. And I've done a little bit of this myself um, and for, a, for a former project. But the other area is more kind of on the AI side. And the idea is using these um, these headsets, you know might allow you to sort of visualize uh, whether it's sort of big data trends or see different options in a, in a different way. So there's been a lot of work on, you know, decision making and, and through the use of augmented and virtual reality, you might be able to sort of literally see data or to see decision making uh, in, a, in a slightly different way where options are presented to you and you can kind of like click through. Like there's a um, lots of movies have this type of, of technology where it's like, you know, going yeah. in the air, swiping through various. Minority Report is a good is a good example of that. Minority Report. Exactly. Of that user interface. Exactly. Uh, disclosure is another one. Disclosure, where you can imagine a situation where this headset sort of like puts you in in a room where you have just access to unlimited information in a, in a sort of tactile way that allows you to, to potentially see things literally and sort of figuratively that you wouldn't, wouldn't normally see. So I don't think there's a direct application of this Apple product uh, tomorrow. Like, I don't think this is going to, we're not going to go to the UN next year and see like everybody wearing uh, virtual reality headsets. I do think in the future though, this is going to be an area of, of greater importance, particularly 
you know, if if we can get the security concerns kind of figured out uh, and we can figure out ways to authenticate, you know, who it is that you believe you're you're speaking with in these like virtual reality uh, uh, settings. If we can get make all that secure and we can authenticate uh, and we can have classified information be presented on these on these devices. I do think that there's there's quite a bit of potential here. I mean, as, as someone who's focused on face to face diplomacy as, you know, their major research area, to, to what extent do you get? the benefits of face-to-face diplomacy when you're talking to even a very realistic, uh, Apple calls them persona, but Meta will call them avatars, uh, a very realistic representation of the person that you're in a virtual world with, or you're in an augmented reality meeting with, do you get, don't, don't you have to be looking into their real eyes? Can you look into their cartoon eyes and get the same benefit? Well, this is this is actually this should be an NSF grant for us, Jeff, because I think right. this is a, this is a good series of questions that you're asking. The, the, the short answer is we don't we don't know yet. Um, but one of the things that I I believe I understand about the Apple product that makes it a little bit different, you know, a lot of these virtual reality um, uh, devices and worlds, like Meta, the the Meta Facebook's sort of like Metaverse or whatever they what they call it, it's 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 been very sort of cartoony. Right. The idea is like you have these avatars that, that look like cartoons, like and they're they're not your real face. They're like this, like this avatar that's that's not even close to being realistic. My understanding is with this product uh, and it's going to depend on the software and how they develop it, that they're actually trying to make these look look much more human. So we say look much more human. What does that mean? Well, if it can do things like reveal emotional states, right? Like if the, if the virtual reality allows me to, to look at you and realize, you know, when you're, when you're excited or when you're nervous, or when I say something about a potential deal that I want to make with you, and I can read from your, your mannerisms and I can read from your expressive behaviors that you're into this idea, or maybe I say something and I can tell, you know, that didn't hit with Jeff, uh, what I just said, like he's, he's a little skeptical, right? I might change what I'm, what I'm doing. These are things that are going to be uh, really difficult to, to recreate in this virtual world. But if they can, then a lot of the, the benefits of face-to-face uh, diplomacy, I think, could be extrapolated to these virtual worlds. You might ask, well, why, why doesn't, you know, stuff like Zoom, like, why isn't that, that sufficient? And there's, there's lots of, of different, you know, work that are looking at, at Zoom diplomacy and Zoom interactions. And, you know, it's, it's, people hate Zoom for lots of different reasons. But one of the reasons is that the, the information sort of richness and quality is, is good on Zoom. But it's not great, right? And so, like, if you had the ability to sort of pick up on more subtle changes, and virtual reality allows you to do that in, in, in people's faces and such, then I think it actually would be would be more beneficial uh, than even you know really high quality video conferencing. But I think a lot of this is TBD, and a lot of this I think will be determined by what the software developers uh, do. Presumably, the diplomats are not the sort of core customer. Uh, or for the for the worlds that they're they're creating, it might be that their core customers are like fourteen year olds that prefer the kind of more cartoonish avatars, and so for that reason, maybe the, the sort of high quality you know uh, uh, rendition of a human face is not something that they're particularly keen to develop and put resources and money into, precisely because that's not what people want. So we'll we'll see kind of how it develops. I am optimistic, however, about Apple's uh, product for diplomacy, and I am going to purchase one as soon as it's available. Yeah, and I think this is something that William & Mary should absolutely purchase for both of us so that we can test out how accurate the representations are. Um, you know, Apple has a, a system for, for creating these 
these virtual persona, the di- they call them digital persona or spatial persona. Basically, you hold the, the headset in front of your face and it takes a 3D scan of your face. And then inside the headset are cameras that are focused on your face and eyes. And the idea is that they then represent in a kind of 3D model of your face, uh, your facial expressions, where your eyes are looking, your eye movements. And so in that sense, they provide a better representation than a cartoon character would, but still not as good as just a Zoom call, right? Right. In terms of what your face is doing, because it's your actual face. Um, And so I think it's kind of interesting to think about what are the real triggers of the uh, the kind of brain activity, Marcus, that you think of as making face-to-face diplomacy more valuable than than virtual diplomacy is is the trigger a uh, perfect representation of my facial expression, in which case Zoom is the way to go. Or right. is there something to be something to be said for this kind of 3D presence, in which case uh, maybe a virtual world is a better bet? Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, it's a great question. I think it also depends partially on uh, the sort of pluses and minuses of, of both, right? So you hit the nail on the head in the sense that Zoom gives you like a very nice, albeit not perfect, representation, digital representation of of somebody's um, uh, face, and so therefore you you're you're sort of simulating for yourself the facial expressions that they have, their micro expressions even, which are a little bit harder to do on Zoom, but you can still. Uh, get away with it. One problem with Zoom, by the way, is that there is slight delays. Uh, it's it's imperceptible to uh, consciously to humans like to to realize that there's a delay. But when you're in a, in a physical co-present environment, and I say something, and you see in my face the what what is going on at a micro level with the words that are coming out of my mouth, that's a sort of one to one. I mean, it's the speed of sound from when, or the speed of light and speed of sound with based in the physical environment. But on Zoom, there's a slight delay that messes with that process. And actually, this is one of the reasons why some some scientists that look at, at Zoom interactions think that this is one of the reasons why Zoom tends to make people tired. Uh, you get more tired interacting. Often people get more tired interacting over Zoom than interacting in, in a physical environment because your brain is trying to constantly make up what's going on in that in that slight delay. So Zoom will give you the ability to see somebody's face uh, pretty well. But what it doesn't give you are other things that are important in face-to-face diplomacy that, that I've, I've researched, like the ability, for example, to have a barrier to outsiders. Like one of the things that's going on right now is that you don't know if there's somebody off screen listening to this uh, in, a, in a State Department kind of environment. You don't know if things are, are being recorded. You don't know if somebody's you know listening from, from you know on the other side of the screen and so forth. And so that, that challenges a lot of diplomacy because – you can't sort of exclude others and have that sort of interpersonal moment. That's hard to do on Zoom. In this virtual reality world, if you can get to a place where the technology is such that you can just confine it to who, who is literally in this virtual world with the headsets, for example, then you might be able to do to do something like that. And so I think it, it, it sort of depends on what, what qualities uh, we're looking for. You know, Zoom will give us, you know, the sort of more realistic human face. Uh, but potentially the, the virtual reality and augmented reality will give you the body-to-body experience, which you're not going to get the, the face as much, but you're going to get that sort of bodily co-presence that, that sociologists talk about as being important for developing personal relationships. I mean, if you, if you find Zoom calls tiring, wait till you try it with like a giant headset on your, on your head the whole time. Well, the problem the is on your face. that is a problem. And I think that the technology, even this Apple product, it seems... It seems pretty bulky to me, you know? It's like we need to get yeah. to a point where these these whether it's a headset or some other technology, you know, maybe it's like a dome that you step into or something, like an MRI machine. But like you you need it to be a little less clunky 
I think before people are going to, you know, take it seriously for for like a, a negotiation over, you know, settling Ukraine, let's say, I don't think people are going to do that with uh, big, you know, bulky headsets on. So I think that's a that's one of the limiting factors. So the, the technology has a long way to go, I think, before we're we're hitting the sort of like moment in time where people are using this kind of on a regular uh, basis. But that doesn't mean it's not worth studying now and sort of making, you know, sort of some initial claims and theories about what the value might be down the road. You know, that seems that seems fine to me. And indeed, that's what people are doing. Yeah. And all of this will get better, right? So Apple's 3D model will, you know, in a, in some number of years be a very accurate likeness of your face. You know, all that is going to improve this. And, you know, I should say Meta is doing the same thing with the Quest Pro, and they already have a process that takes multiple hours to create a realistic persona. And that, and that seems to work really well if you're willing to put the, the hours and processing time into it. But, you know, the, the kind of fundamental challenges of digital communication, not knowing whether you're being over, overheard, you know, all, that sort of thing is not going to be solved, right? I mean, that is a, it, that is kind of, uh, a core issue with any kind of virtual interaction, be it Zoom or or uh, the the lag is the other thing, right? I mean, yeah. if there's an imperceptible lag in Zoom, there's going to be more of an imperceptible lag in your 3D interaction Most likely, um, yes. with a headset, yeah. right? So these are things that are, um, that will improve over time. But the idea that you can't exclude others, you can't know you're, you're um, meeting privately, that that's a, a digital problem more than it is a tech- specific technology problem. Agreed. And it seems like that's going to be a hard one to, to solve. I mean, it, it's it's conceivable you could imagine a, a device that somehow would alert you to some of these things, like if, if a signal was being picked up or listened to or something like that. But it's it's hard to sort of kind of imagine that that problem being solved. And so for that reason, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev going for a little walk uh, to talk about nuclear security, that's going to be hard to replicate uh, with with virtual reality anytime soon. Let me mention just a, a couple of other international security applications of, of augmented reality. And when I say augmented reality, that just means like, okay, you can see what's in front of you, but then overlaid on what's in front of you is digital information, right? Um, and so the, the dream of this that's many years down the road is you put on a pair of glasses and you're walking down the street and your your walking directions are overlaid in the glasses that you're wearing that no one else can see just you you meet with you meet someone it reminds you that person's name and why you know them by overlaying something on top of the image you're seeing so augmented reality is kind of the the future in doing it in in an unobtrusive way and apple with the vision pro is attempting to make this an augmented reality first device instead of a virtual reality first device so when you put it on, you're immediately presented with the room in front of you, unlike the Meta Quest devices where you put them on and you're in some kind of virtual world. And the idea there is that Apple is trying to make sure that people wearing this thing are connected to others around them instead of being isolated. And that that's a, you know, who knows whether that will be a, a successful angle on the part of Apple. But the idea of augmented reality is very important to the, the U.S. Department of Defense, among others. And in fact, I just saw the news as part of this announcement that Apple has actually purchased a company called Mira, which created augmented reality headsets for the U.S. military. Mm. And, and Apple doesn't usually announce its purchases, so I don't know how long ago this, this one uh, occurred. But, you know, this is, there's a substantial overlap between the sort of thing that Apple is trying to do with the Vision Pro and that uh, militaries all over the world are trying to do. And there are a couple of reasons that militaries are really interested in augmented reality. And one is the same reason a lot of, like, manufacturing companies are interested in augmented reality or tech companies, and that's for training. Because 
the idea of using a virtual reality experience or an augmented reality experience to train troops or to train kind of uh, manufacturing processes or tech workers or whatever is a really powerful one. There are actually quite a lot of studies that have looked at the effectiveness of training in virtual reality and found that it is far more effective than other forms of training, like, you know, watching a video, for example. If you can experience the, the training exercise, then you can do things that you can never do with just a video or just reading about it. And I think companies recognize this. And so one of the key potential markets for something like this is training both in the private sector and in the public sector and in the military. Um, so training is one thing, but there are also kind of battlefield applications for augmented reality in particular. And you can just think of, of these headsets as a, as a, a heads-up display that travels with you, right? So if you're in like a, many kinds of military equipment, you will have a heads-up display that gives you the data you need to make decisions you know, where your adversaries are, where your friendly troops are, to give you situational awareness, what we used to call battle space awareness, what's going on out there in the, in the battlefield. And imagine if you're a soldier having that right on your eyes. So when you look around, you see, okay, friendlies over here, adversaries over there. Here's where my air support is coming from. There's the target that's painted for an airstrike. Yep. All of that could be at your finger, at your eyeballs, right? Um, so that you would have a better ability to maneuver in the battle space. And this is something that's been a long-standing dream of, of military technology folks. And the Apple headset seems to be pushing things closer to where this could be possible. Because right now, prior to this headset, the technology hasn't existed to give you that kind of portable heads-up display that could travel with troops. And it, it probably isn't there yet still. But uh, this is the kind of thing that I think militaries and organizations like DARPA kind of see as a uh, promising future approach to help troops on the battlefield be be more effective. I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I had um one other potential application that I thought of while you were talking. Now that I wasn't listening to what you were saying, of course, but yeah. you, you, you spurred uh, another thought in my head. Uh, we talked about traditional kind of interpersonal face-to-face -face diplomacy, but there's also a public diplomacy element uh to all of this as well. In 2007, uh Sweden created a virtual um embassy on second life which i'm not even sure still exists but I it's like second life yeah. yeah yeah so it was like one of these like virtual reality you know for the kids at home this is like a website that was sort of like you know you create this virtual world and you can get, be whoever you want and have whatever job you want it's like basically like a big video game but it was there's no real goal to it you just kind of like you know had your little second life uh, online uh so they opened up this embassy and it wasn't like you know counselor services it wasn't like i got arrested uh, in Stockholm, like, you know, help me or whatever. It was more, uh, I guess that would be the U.S. Embassy. But it was it was basically like having a um, a way to promote Swedish culture and innovations and things like that in a kind of a fun, unique kind of way. And so there was one thought at, at the time that this might be a, a very useful way of having public diplomacy programming, particularly in places where you either don't have an embassy or you're having trouble kind of engaging with local uh, audiences, right? So you want to, the United States wants to have some uh, outreach to Iran, let's say, kind of hard to do that through traditional uh, channels, but we could have a virtual uh, U.S. embassy that was that was open to uh, Iranians who wanted to to come in and like learn about the United States or you know ask about is it possible to travel to the United States or whatever the case might be in a, in a safe environment that is reachable uh, to audiences that would be difficult to reach in a sort of bricks and mortar uh, kind of way. So 
that technology, you know, it, it exists today and you could you could do that, but you could imagine a world in which these devices are are a little bit more ubiquitous and, and inexpensive and really have kind of robust offerings from a public diplomacy perspective, uh, maybe people attending concerts, you know, hosted by the United States uh, or, or something like that, and, you know, sort of engage with, with the United States from a, from a PD perspective that wouldn't be possible uh, because, you, you know, difficult to travel, it's expensive and all that. So I think there are other applications in diplomacy beyond the kind of traditional interpersonal stuff that would be worth thinking about and potentially developing if I'm, if I'm the State Department. Yeah, Absolutely. We covered a lot of ground. I think we should. As always. Yeah, I think we should uh, save some stuff for next time. Marcus, thanks so much for for joining me. This has been a pleasure. So if you have comments for us, comments, questions, want to tell us what we should be talking about or or where uh, Marcus was wrong about something, you can send us a note at uh, cheaptalkpod at gmail.com or leave us a uh, voicemail at uh, www.speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk. And uh, that's always nice to get. Uh, Marcus, thanks so much. We'll... We'll be checking back in. Yeah, we'll do maybe another another summer special. Excellent. All right. Uh, thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Uh, I think the the bottom line for from this discussion is that uh, one of our listeners at Apple should really send us. Uh, well, we have plenty uh, of uh, Apple listeners, and so we just need one of them to just shoot us an email. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll just check out a beta test version. I'll even accept the developer version. They're talking about how to mm-hmm, how to mm-hmm. roll that out. Just to- I would like to review it. I mean, we could we could we we could even and this is this is you might disagree with this. We might do a live recording where both of us are wearing the Apple devices and Absolutely, we can talk about our our impressions uh, while we while we do the pod. I, I will go to Cupertino if they want to control access to the headset. I I think I'd be willing to do that. Uh, Has there been a, a documentary written about C- Cupertino? Like what? What? Why Cupertino? Why not? Why not Cupertino, Marcus? I, I, don't know. I, I just I because I, I Cupertino. Uh, if if you're an Apple user, everybody knows Cupertino. But like I didn't I didn't know Cupertino before Apple, and it's it's just a, it's a very it's it's like a recognizable but like sort of like fun thing like new name to say. Maybe that's part of it. Like Cuper, Cupertino. Like who doesn't like saying that? Yeah, no, it's it resonates is what I'm trying to say, uh, and I don't think it resonates just because you select that as your one of your time zones and your Apple uh, product. I think we just it's I think it's a fun word to say.